As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It's been a tough year so far for the big banks on Wall Street. On the stock price, we can now catch up with Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, sitting down with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix. Thank you so much, John. Yes, we're in London, and we could not be more pleased. I say the royal we, but we're really delighted to speak to Jamie Dimon. Thank you so much for taking the time whilst you're in London to speak to us. So the Fed, the Fed, the Fed. Today, we're expecting 50 basis points hikes. What happens to inflation here? Is this your biggest concern? So, first of all, Francine, happy to be here. And to give a little perspective, we have, and these, this is contradictory, I'm about to say, but both are true. Very strong U.S. economy. Yeah. They consumers in great shape, lots of money, spending the money, jobs are plentiful, wages are going up, though everything is distorted by inflation and all that, but those are good news, and uh, businesses are in very good shape, and the Fed is going to have to raise rates and reverse QE. And they're going to, you know, if they can, they're going to try to slow down the economy enough so that 8% starts to come down over time. And I wish them the best. Yeah. You know, we're a little late, but, you know, remember two years ago we had 15% unemployment and no vaccine. So I think people should take a deep breath, give them a chance, and I think they got to move, I think the sooner they move, the better. Uh, so, yeah, they're going to be raising rates. Deep breath, but can they engineer a soft landing? Uh, or is there I, a worry I, of recession? In of the course. US? But none of us will ever know, right? But if I had a, I'm, I'm not a betting man. I just, the odds are the following. Something like, yes, they can engineer a soft landing, a third of a percent chance. Probably a 30 percent chance they can engineer a mild recession. Think of we've had mild Fed-induced recessions before. You know where inflation goes up one and a half or two percent, everything slows down, inflation is coming down, and it's six or nine months. And then there's a chance this could be much harder than that. And then in the face of all of that, you have Ukraine, which is a right. huge global issue. And do you fear the Fed? And do you fear a policy mistake from the Fed? And what that does to consumers? I'm, I'm not. I'm not afraid of the Fed. I, you know, I, I, I'll change the subject a little bit. I think America needs very good domestic policy to improve the growth of the economy, which right. makes the Fed job easier. And that is about regulations and rules and policies and, and improving projects and things like that. So you have, you know, increase the supply side as opposed to, you know, do some of the demand side. So the Fed's job would be easier if we had very rational, thoughtful economic policy. What could go wrong? Though? I mean, you talk about, you know, a strong U.S. consumer, strong business. You talked also about 
storm clouds. What are those storm crowd, clouds, well, and the, what's worst-case scenario? Right? Yeah, I, I hate the word unprecedented, but this kind of fiscal and monetary-induced unbelievable growth in the U.S., which was true around the world, though it's obviously slowing down in Europe, that's abnormal. We've never really quite had that before. We've never had QT before. So, you know, you look at QE, that's one of the greatest experiments ever done. They're going to be writing books for 50 years on it, and we're going to have to reverse it. And that's a huge change in the flow of funds over time around bonds and rates and stuff like that. My own view is that rates are probably, will still have to go up uh, from here. Uh, and then you've got Ukraine, which, you know, I think is a potential, you know, when you look at Ukraine, obviously the wishful thinking is we have a Fed and do slowdown works, uh, the world is fine, Ukraine resolves, but there's a chance that this goes on for years and that you completely rattle uh, global energy markets, wheat markets, commodity markets, and, you know, that, and we need, as you know, the Western world needs to be prepared for that and needs to take every action today to be prepared that that can get really bad tomorrow. And, you know, when it gets really but, bad tomorrow, you don't have time. So how do you handle that? How do you, what, what's your plan B if it does go I, all pear-shaped? I like the fact that the, well, it, it will deal with it. You know, I mean, that's life. But how? I mean, I like the, in my view, the most important thing is American growth and that America, you know, I call this Marshall Plan for Energy, that we do everything we can. And this doesn't violate climate change. It doesn't change anything about long-term objectives, but that we do everything we can to get oil and gas into the hands of Europeans so they don't freeze in the winter. You know, and I, again, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you know, you have a couple of problems out there. The, the national energy stuff is, the global energy is precarious. And if you know, oil goes to 185, that's a huge problem for people, and we should do everything we can today. We need to pump more oil and gas. We need to Why are they pipelines. not, Jamie? I, if you look at the U.S. They're, frackers, they're, they could drill more. We get confused about policy and that somehow doing that is bad for the climate. It's not. You know, we need, you know, if you want transition, you need gas to replace coal. And we should approve all the green stuff, too. Even the green stuff takes five years to ten years to approve in the United States. I mean, America needs to get its act together, and they should have a war room. They should get everyone involved, get you know, all the people, and say, what do we need to do in a consistent, coherent way? We need to get more gas to LNG terminals. Well, you can't do that without a gas pipeline. You know, and so we're just not rational anymore. We, 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 we have misconceived notions about how we're going to get things done. and uh, so. And they're trying. What's but, the know, role of Europe in this? Could, could Europe see a recession because of the energy prices? Absolutely. You know, our economists would say that Europe has slowed down to 2% or something. But the, 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 the problem with right now, and the economists would agree with me, we're looking at a static analysis that if things stay the way they are. But you and I know for certain things don't stay the way they are. And my view is there's a very high chance that oil will go higher. It only takes a million to two million barrels off the market a day that can drive prices up 30 or $40. And so we should prepare for that today and uh, so but, but, I, but, I, but I like the fact I think it's great that the Western world has gotten together yeah. I and mean, who would have thought but for that Europe, Putin would get Sweden Finland Germany Switzerland all of us to but that working together part yeah. we need to make permanent for how global quickly, security. Jane, first of all just going back to the European economy how quickly could we see a recession and how uh, deep uh, could it be I, I don't know I mean, I, you know, I hate to guess the future. No one really knows the future. I've never seen anyone really guess it well. But again, if you have, if Ukraine gets worse, I would assume that Europe's going to go to a recession. It may take a couple of quarters, but I would assume that. Are sanctions working? So are the sanctions trying to deter Russia from continuing the war in Ukraine, or is it just to, to try and put the Russian economy on their Yeah, well, sanctions is not the same as ha having tanks and airplanes, okay? But they are working to the extent that, you know, the Russian GDP is going to drop by 10 or 15 percent with the current sanctions. And remember, there, there's 
sanctions and also the export controls and stuff like that. And you know, the next round, if Europe really stop, stops oil and you can really stop oil being delivered, you know, Europe, I mean, Russia, it can get another 10% down. So it's a tool in the toolkit. It's not definitive. What's definitive is tanks. So you know we we're not don't don't confuse the two, but you know one is a pretty powerful. The sanctions are a pretty powerful tool. But if you expect this to last for, you, I think you said years. I don't expect it. I said we should be you prepared for it too. I don't know what's going to happen. But how do you see this ending? And actually, if you're if if you're a president of the U.S., if you're a president of the Commission, if you're the Fed right now, you need to game theory, and it could go either way. It's like a three-way system. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Is I would it, plan for all three of them. I think it's a mistake to guess at which one it'll be. It should be all three of them. And I think, you know, I think basically the Cold War is back. I think the whole world learned something that we always knew, that national security is always the most important thing, but it kind of recedes in the background. We're all doing well. But now it's the most important thing. It should be the most important thing for the rest of our lives. So maybe we all learned that that, that is a permanent state of affairs. The Cold War is back. Uh, the right. allies have to coalesce, and not just for military purposes, but for global, economic, strategic, investment purposes so that we've got a safe world. If, uh, and if we don't do that, you know, you, you, you see Ukraine, you can see all around the world. You will see forms of chaos. So the impact on the economy, I mean, would you go around a trading floor and tell the, the young kids that have never dealt with inflation <laughs> that actually interest rates could be up at 5% shortly? Of course. I mean, of course, that's, you know, things change. And you know, I, I mean, I think you can easily see 5% uh, bonds. Now, bonds have already, you know, 10-year bonds have already reacted dramatically, and hopefully it won't go a lot. But I don't think it's a disaster. I don't think a slowdown is a disaster. I don't think a mini, I, look, when you say a mini recession, I feel for the people who get hurt in that. But it's not a disaster for the world economy. I think the potential outcomes of Ukraine are. And, and you've got to just separate the two. And just remember, when you talk about war, we didn't know how bad Vietnam was going to get. We didn't know how long Afghanistan was going to last. The Russians didn't know how long Afghanistan was going to last. You can go war after war after war. They were not predictable. You didn't know that World War I was going to be like that. You didn't know that World War II was going to start in, so, in September of 1939. So I think predicting the outcome of this war, you've got to be right. very careful. But so why are markets so relaxed? That's markets. You know, I'm, uh, that, that can change just like that. Do you think it will, or are we expecting a big correction? I'm not guessing. I don't know. I mean, again, Francine, my job in life is to, I will serve our clients with thick yeah. or thin and our country and stuff like that. And of course, we're always, I mean, as a rule of thumb, we're always prepared for bad outcomes. Not because we're predicting them, because I need to say to the shareholder, the American public, my regulators, you know, the, the UK, that JP Morgan will be safe and sound and help your country and your people if things get bad. And that is our job. Now we're dealing with a whole bunch of different things, and we're prepared. You know, we have extraordinary capability and capital and earnings power. And uh, well, um, where's China in this right now? You know, look, I, I, my view is that China can't possibly like this. And they're playing, if you look at them, they're playing a very neutral role. They're not trying to anger the United States. They know that the American Congress may very well, the Congress, not just the president, can come in and put you know, these secondary sanctions. They do $3.5 trillion of trade with the West imports and exports. They do $150 billion with Russia. Okay, one number is critically important. Sanctions against them may be bad for the Western world. It'll be even yeah. worse for them. And so they don't need that. They want to grow their country. They want to expand. You know, may, maybe they don't like the West so much. They like this. I, don't, I just don't believe that's true. Okay. I, I think that they're caught between a rock and a hard place. They had this so-called ally yeah. who, who's putting them in a difficult place. But can we still rely on China, given the, the COVID zero policy, and actually the shocks that's coming just from, from that policy continuing? 
I think you know, China has done, you, you got to put China in perspective. It's done a very good job developing itself over 30 or 40 years. It doesn't have all the strengths of the Western world. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't have our food, our water, our energy, our innovation, our rule of law, you know, the, 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 the competition of ideas. You know, autocracy has huge negatives. They don't have enough food, war, and energy. Their, their neighbors are very complex. Russia, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Philippines, Japan, Korea. It's hard for them to be expansionary. Uh, they don't have our, a lot of things we have. So yes, I think we should be worried about them. And I think the West should negotiate mm -hmm. you know, a, how we're going to deal with trade, unfair competition, IP. But sit down with them. Yeah. You know, work work it through with them. We shouldn't. We don't need to be afraid of them. We we should be afraid of is our own incompetence, not dealing with the Chinese. As long as we stay together. If the Western world doesn't stay together, you know, they'll cherry pick yeah. every nation, and and then you'll but, you'll end up with what you had with Germany and Nord Stream two, are, which are will be committed? that will be a problem. Jim, are you committed to China? So if we're seeing a split, and we're seeing the HSBC and, and investor activism, could you see big banks actually being split in two because of this east-west tension? No. I think, again, you, know, you got to look, I mean, business you run for 30 or 40 years. So we've made a big investment in China, greater China, including Hong Kong, et cetera, you know, will be 30 or 40 percent of the global market one day. They're, they're a, they will be a fully developed nation in 20 or 30 years. Their politics will change. You know, is there a chance of a very bad outcome? That you know the world completely separates. There's a chance, you know, that that will be bad for J.P. Morgan, but we'll survive. But I think there's a much bigger chance that that the the blocks will negotiate strategic, economic, a bunch of other arrangements. Uh, like I said, it's 3.5 billion trade. But this my, over my, what my timeline? Will, will change. Like five, what ten will years? change. Yeah. It'll, it'll take time. What will change is anything to do with national security, anything. So think of AI, 5G penicillin, rare earths, semiconductors, those supply chains will be brought back, as Janet Yellen said today, will be friendly sourced. Doesn't have to be in the States, it's got to be in an ally. So I think all nations are going to do that. China already does that. Yeah. So this is a unilateral thing. And I think the rest of the trade will be fine. We're fundamentally fine. And that may, that may take time. But, it, you know, but that will happen over time. And it's kind of a little surprising to me how much the Western world relied on China, not, not for trade and for sneakers and for shirts and stuff, but for rare earths. But they have them. We don't. No, we do. That's, that's, that's the whole thing. We, America's got tons of rare earths. It just costs a lot more money to take it out and smelt it, and therefore, and they're environmentalists and all that. That's why I'm saying national security. Yeah, yeah. If I was in the White House, the only thing I'd be doing now is national security. And I'd be making decisions every day about how we create more secure energy, rare earths, commodities, wheat, all the things that the world's going to need, not against China, right. but to protect the Western world. And um, so all these things could be done. America's not used to having an industrial policy, but to do that successfully, you're going to have to have some form of industrial policy where you're doing right. some kind of subsidies. It should, but, but be clear, because I don't want to subsidize a company. Right. I just think some of these things need to be brought back to the United this States. This will probably be inflationary, right? Does it, is crypto I think it, a hedge I, against inflation No. right now? I, no. I think and, and the, the higher rates go, the more cost to hold right. an asset doesn't no. produce anything. So, but I, I think national security is number one. I would not do something because of inflation, because of national security. They are completely different. And people shouldn't get confused, the two. And you know, the, the, this is why the America has to take leadership on that this is a matter of national security. If everything turns out fine in Ukraine, we'll all take a deep breath and say, we overreacted. I'd rather that than we all take a deep breath and say, my God, we were not prepared. And 
When it comes to Roe v. Wade, we've been talking about nothing else for the last two days. What does it mean for J.P. Morgan and I'm, your employees? I'm not going to get involved in that. I, I think it's a mistake. You know, these things are very complicated, and you know, when people pass laws everywhere, there's actually a hundred things in the but law. This is costs, right? No, it's it not. It's not. Insurance? There are a hundred things in all these laws. A hundred. Like, and so when you people say support this, support that, all you're doing is being sucked into support something you probably shouldn't. Yeah. I've looked at all the voting laws, I've looked at all these laws, and you look at them, I agree with some of the things they say, I don't agree with some of the things they say, New York does a better job than Georgia. This, so I'm not going to get sucked into saying I support your law. But instead of support, I mean, do you see actually for, for such a big bank in the U.S. having to shift because of policies whatever it is, if Whatever it, it is, we'll deal with it. I don't sit here and fear that. Whatever it is, we'll deal with it. And we'll take care of our people like we've always said we would. All right, Jamie Dimon, thank you so much. I need to talk to you about the UK. We need to have a conversation also about the UK and the city of London. Uh, Jamie Dimon, and we'll have plenty more from London throughout the day. Francine Lankwa, thank you. Sitting down with Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan Chase. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We had a two-hour discussion last today with Kenneth Rogoff that we squeezed into a matter of minutes. We do that again with a laureate from New York University. Paul Romer joins us. He is a different economist in that from day one, the gentleman of Colorado has done academics at Rochester and beyond where he has said, always consider technology. Paul Romer joins us uh, this morning. Professor, thank you so much for joining. I want to go back to the heart of it. Endogenous technological change. Do we actually understand what technology is doing to the American labor economy, to people in our many deciles? Yeah. So there's a good way to see if some of the problems we're experiencing in the U.S. are technology-based. Look at other countries. Same technology shocks are hitting all countries. And what's unfortunate is the U.S. really stands out as an outlier with this declining uh, fraction of adult males, adult females who are working. All of the other countries, Britain, Germany, you know, they're seeing these steady increases. So it can't be technology which is explaining this decline in the U.S. Jeffrey Sachs would agree with you. His book over 10 years ago now really got out front on this from a whole different uh, angle, I would say. Professor Romer, Professor Sachs, two different views on a part of America that can't get a job. Why can't they? Yeah. I, I think can't get a job is not quite right because we've got all this evidence that there are jobs that are available. Right now, the returns to work, just the compensation you get, uh, the quality of what work is like is just not high enough. We've let this deteriorate through uh, a couple of decades now. And what we have to commit to is that everyone should be working, but if you work, you should uh, earn enough to make it worth your, your trouble. So 
these increases we were seeing for jobs like a gas station at that, you know, 25% increase, that's catching up for declines that we tolerated for, for much too long. And uh, we, should, we should be pushing for more increases in wages, more attractiveness of work, because we can't live in a society where people just check out, especially adult, you know, adults check out and don't work. And Paul, you're saying this is the participation rate still hasn't gotten back to where it was pre-pandemic, still below that. Still, you're talking about the need for even faster wage increases at a time when people are very concerned about the highest levels of consumer price inflation going back to 1981. How much do you think that the flood of money put into the economy during the pandemic, the checks sent to individuals, actually undermined the ability to engage in fiscal stimulus like what you're talking about to get more people into the workforce? Well, I, you have to think about targeting the fiscal stimulus. Like, what would be a targeted measure? Uh, we could have a subsidy for wages at the bottom end of the wage distribution. The government could pick up part of the cost. Or we could be like other countries. We don't make the worker in the firm cover the full cost of the health insurance for the worker. So there's ways to target spending to make work more attractive that, that don't involve just like sending checks to, to everybody in the economy. And if you think about inflation, it's a weighted average of a bunch of price changes. So the wrong response right now is to say, we want to make those gas station attendants uh, have a, uh, lower wages or stop them from getting wage increases. There's a lot of other pr prices in the economy it, that we could be putting some pressure on without hammering uh, the, the low-wage workers who've been hammered for two decades. There's the should and then there's the will. And as we talk, we know that President Biden is going to speak at 2 p.m. today to talk about deficit reduction to appeal uh, to a lot of voters who are concerned about how much the debt uh, limit and the debt has increased in this nation. What do you think will happen, given that the fiscal stimulus that you're talking about is unlikely, and given the pace of inflation and how it's being targeted right now let me be honest um on especially in the realm of politics i've been telling everybody for about four years now add more variance to your estimates put more weight in the tails we've seen more astonishing unexpected things in the last four years than in the rest of my lifetime so i'm not i'm not going to make any strong predictions about what's going to happen in the politics all I can yeah. tell you is what I think should happen. And we should make we should make work attractive for everybody. Paul Romer, this is great. I love it how the Nobel laureate folks is telling us there's been four once-in-a-lifetime events in the last four <laughs> years. Professor Romer, I want to go to the behavioral heart of the matter, and maybe this is very Jeff Sachs-like and others as well. Did all of this wage challenge and disincentive start with executive bonuses and the way that executives are compensated and that well-meaning executives look at that if they give a wage growth to their lower two deciles, three deciles of staff of labor, they're taking dollar for dollar from their bonus. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I think economists contributed to this because we argued, uh, and I was one of them, I, these sounded right to me, that if we made the compensation for executives more variable, they'd have stronger incentives to do their jobs well. But more variable got translated into just higher <clears throat> payments almost across the yep. board. And so we provided cover for this change in norms. Um, and at the same time, we didn't pay enough attention to the really serious uh, lagging uh, effects we were seeing in, in the rest of the economy. And there were many beneficial effects from opening up to free trade, 
But we understood at the time that one of the harmful effects would be that people would lose jobs in manufacturing. And we always said, well, you can do something to help those, those workers. So everybody benefits from trade. But the problem is we didn't do that something. And so they, they suffered. I mean, and one of the things here, folks, that we need to say is Professor Romer is truly expert at monetary theory as well. You're having a cup of coffee today with the chairman of the Federal Reserve System, and he's looking at you saying, tell me about technology, tell me about labor, tell me about the dynamics of the American economy. Should he care about that, or does he need to stay riveted on a Fed mandate in the purity of what a central bank does? You know, I think I would tell him to stay focused on his mandate, which is really to watch inflation. And if you think about what was most damaging in the end of the 70s, it was the sense of living in a world where things were out of control. And what Volcker reestablished for us was that there was somebody who was in control and would bring inflation down. I think the job of the Fed right now is to show that they can bring inflation down, uh, both technically and politically. They've got the room to do that, and they will. He needs to reassure people and give them confidence. But I think we really need to not let Congress and the executive branch off the hook on the rest of economic policy. It's their job to think hard about what do we do to make uh, work and uh, economic life, attra uh, life attractive to everybody. Paul, one of the biggest questions is whether the Fed's going to try to get back down to a 25 to 2% inflation rate in the near term, and that this will decide how quickly they have to go in the potential destruction to the economy. Do you think that they should target a higher rate of, say, 3% or more, the Adam Posen-like uh, kind of idea? I'm, I'm persuaded by that argument. And three, you know, Olivier Blanchard was talking about 4% for a while. I think either of those numbers would be fine. But the argument you hear about that against that is, well, if it's three or 4%, uh, it'll, it'll also be six or seven or eight or nine. And that doesn't make any sense to me. We could target a stable 4% inflation rate if we wanted to, or a stable 2%. I, I think we'd be much better off at a stable uh, 3%, maybe better off at a stable 4%. Paul, you lived the Colorado boom. All I did was go down to the sink in Boulder and have beers. Course three two's light. Your course three two light, Paul, is your father's yeah. fault. I want to make that clear, just so we <laughs> understand that you live. I'll take that. You'll take that. You live the Colorado boom. I, I can't say enough uh, about that. There's a part of America, like in Ohio, with a primary we saw yesterday, screaming that they want their Colorado boom. How do we move the Colorado boom to Ohio without the Coors 3-2 beer? Yeah. You know, one thing that we aren't paying enough attention to is that the jobs can come to the workers, but the workers ought to be able to go to the jobs. Um, uh, mobility has gone down, like cross-state mobility, partly because we've put restrictions on the supply of new housing. And housing's gotten so expensive in places that have these hot, uh, these hot labor markets. So... This is not something you can turn around in a quarter or a year, but we should be trying to increase the mobility of labor and also recognize a point I've been hammering on for a while, which is that the future is in cities and we can't be talking about how do we bring life back, uh, all this kind of manufacturing and other kinds of economic activity to small rural towns. It's not going to happen. You've got to make room in cities uh, for everybody who wants to move there to, to move there and get a job. Paul, it's been fantastic listening to you. Thanks for giving us your time. Paul Roma there of NYU. Sure. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Joining us now, Ben Laidler, global market strategist at Etoro, to tell us what he really thinks. Not far from peak Fed fear. Ben Laidler, what makes you think that? I think we've, we've priced in 3.5% for the terminal Fed funds rate. We've got this sort of double barrel tightening going on of quantitative tightening and the Fed funds rate. Uh, I think we're pretty close to sort of peak inflation at 8.5%. Uh, I think the market sort of jawbones are tightening of financial conditions and economic conditions are already sort of weakening. So I'm not sure we're entirely there yet. And I don't think Powell's going to turn all dovish on us. But I do think markets have sort of priced in a lot here. Um, and, uh, and we're very sensitive to a little bit of loosening of this sort of Fed vice that we've been caught in, right? They've been driving down valuations and driving up recession fears. Uh, and, and I see both of those loosening off a little bit over the next few weeks. So, Ben, do you think that financial conditions have tightened enough and that stocks have sold off enough to slow the economy enough to get inflation back to a reasonable point for the Fed? I, I think we're well on our way, right? We're, equities are, are, are in a correction. Mortgage rates are over 5%. Uh, we have real, um, real yields uh, for the first time in, in, in years. Uh, the economy is slowing, not just in the U.S., but around the world. If there is a silver lining to what's going on in China and what's going on in Europe, it's that the whole world is, is, is now clearly slowing. So I think you put all that together, and, and I think um, along with, the, again, these expectations for this unprecedented sort of double-barreled Fed tightening here, both uh, off the balance sheet and the, and the interest rate, um, I, think, um, I, I think enough's been done. And, and again, I think... Um, we're primed for more hawkishness and we don't get that. Again, I see the sort of jaws of this vice loosening off a little bit and, and equities trading better than they certainly have done over the last few months. And that's the broader story. I want to talk about a single name. TK, you've seen this move in Lyft this morning, down 28% in the pre-market. It's about access to labour and the cost of labour. And I imagine, yes, Lyft has its own unique problems and Uber maybe shares them and we'll hear from Uber a little bit later this morning. But Tom, surely that's a signal about the broader issue well, in the U.S. labor market at the moment. And to Ben Laidler, I mean, what this comes down to are models of digital models that are not profit-laden. Is profit all that matters now, Ben Laidler? It's the only anchor for this market. I mean, just to be grossly simplistic, you're only, there's only two ways to make money in equities, right? Either valuations go up or earnings go up. Hopefully, they both go up together. But right now, valuations have been falling, and if the Fed stays hawkish, they may continue to fall. So it's all on earnings. Uh, and luckily, the big silver lining to all this is uh, corporates remain in, in very good shape. I mean, despite the sort of headline numbers and, and some sort of high-profile misses, earnings are beating expectations on both sides of the Atlantic. Profit margins are near record highs and very resilient. 
and, and corporate CEOs are, are voting with their balance sheets and they're investing very aggressively. And that's your closest uh, leading indicator to what earnings are going to be in the future. Ben Lather of eToro. Ben, great to catch up, buddy, as <laughs> always. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right now, we're going to digress to the issue of the moment, which is riveted America. And what we do at Surveillance, as we've done with Ukraine, as we've done with COVID, is literally find legit experts. That would be Elaine Kamark. She's senior fellow at the Brookings Institute. Yes, professor at Harvard, but far more. She is a student of presidential success and failure. In a book of another, a number of years ago, The End of Government, as we know it, making public policy work. Elaine, you wrote a definitive essay, I thought very balanced for Brookings yesterday, on this raging debate of abortion. And at the end of it, you predict off of the mask experience of COVID, a tsunami of fury. When does the tsunami hit? Um, hello, and thank you for having me. Um, the tsunami is hit, hit yesterday. Look, it hit last night with the demonstrations outside the Supreme Court. I think these will continue. And I think what it's going to do is going to increase turnout for the midterm elections. So a sleepy and kind of indifferent Democratic electorate, I think, has gotten a big wake up call. And I think people are going to come out to vote in November, perhaps even upending some of those elections, which we were assuming was going to go to the Republicans. Uh, Elaine, Linda Greenhouse, among others, have walked through the Mississippi Circuit uh, approach and what the Supreme Court traditionally has done. Is any of that nuance going to matter in this debate or is it so polarized and each and every American so decisive of their choice on the choice of abortion that all the niceties really don't matter? It's an interesting question because part of what we're going to wait and see is how this in fact plays out. Um, there will be states that will still offer abortion, but at six weeks or at 15 weeks. Okay, so, um, you know, it, this doesn't mean automatically abortion disappears everywhere. And the more interesting thing that's been happening is while attention has been focused on the uh, states getting rid of abortion, there are other states like Maryland, Connecticut, Oregon, who are increasing their abortion workforce. They are allowing non-doctors, other, other health professionals like, like nurse practitioners to perform abortions. They are getting ready for the abortion influx. So people are gonna be traveling to get abortions. It's, um, 
it, it's abortions will not be prohibited. People will be traveling as your map shows. Um, some will have to travel very far. And this is going to, like all things, it, it will have a small effect on the well-educated and people with money. And it's going to have a big effect on poor women who can't afford to travel or who can't even get the information about traveling. So it's going to have a very disparate effect. Uh, but we will have abortion providing states and abortion banned states. There's a question about how this transforms the election heading into the midterms. A lot of people saying that this was leaked in part in order to galvanize uh, voters. There's a lot of speculation on all sides. Putting all that aside, do you think that this fundamentally reshapes the Democrats' chance of actually being a little bit more successful in the midterms? I, I think it does. I think it's a fundamental reshaping, um, particularly in the Senate. OK, I think that the Senate races, because they're statewide races as opposed to districts drawn for one party or the other, I think this fundamentally increases the Democrats' chances of holding the Senate. Um, I think there's going to be real outrage at just the, the interference here in people's lives. And the irony is that many of the same people advocating this rather draconian choice about what women should do with their bodies were also the same people who were arguing for um, medical choice and medical freedom when it came to whether or not they got a COVID test or a COVID shot. So this, this is, this is going to really get people riled up. It has already. I think it will continue to rile people up all the way through November. Elaine, wonderful to hear from you this morning. Thank you. Elaine K. Mark there of the Brookings Institution. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I want to toss out right now, and we're doing this as we introduce Barbara Corcoran, who we like to talk to once a year, twice a year. She is a dynamo of the five bureaus and joins us today. But in a, I don't want to make a joke about this. People Magazine does an absolutely killer issue every year on women across all of entertainment, across all of enterprise and capitalism. And Barbara, they have selected you as a beautiful person. I mean, we were talking about Adele earlier in the show. I don't want you to sing like Adele, but I guess we can talk about your wheelhouse here, which is real estate, all the other things you've done over the years. Barbara, we've never seen rent and housing in this city, the disaster that it is today. How do we extricate ourselves from this train wreck of real estate pricing? 
Well, it's not a total train wreck because it depends upon whose viewpoint you have. If you're a buyer right now, you're complaining uh, that you can't possibly afford it. Interest rates have gone from what? two and a half percent to 5.3, I think, as of yesterday. And so everything's less affordable. So it's a train wreck from a buyer's view. But interesting, Tom, is the the buyers are not slowing down. People are still grabbing real estate Mm -hmm. as though nothing is happening. And that's making a lot of people nervous. It doesn't make me nervous, honestly, because I see that the underfootings of the market are very solid. They're real users buying real homes that aren't highly leveraged and they aren't loaned out with crazy, crazy configurations. If I look at Corcoran Group, you know, that you built from scratch, if I look at it on, say, Tony Madison Avenue or down in the fancy uh, downtown area, the number one fear is we don't want to make New York City look like a given East German city. We don't want row after row of ugly high rises. How do we create more housing that Mayor Adams wants without looking like a given city in Eastern Europe? Well, the reality is is they're not going to be putting uh, affordable housing right next door to $15 million condos. It's just not going to happen. So whether you like the concept that there are some poor neighborhoods and some very, very rich neighborhoods, that die has been cast in New York a long, long time ago. There was never a time when Midtown Manhattan was inexpensive, nor will there ever be, I hope. Uh, But the problem really is in the city's court for making affordable housing, our supply is like a third of what we actually need. And I, I think those public work programs are going to happen and I don't think they're going to happen in the part of town that people want to impress their friends with. It's just not going to be. Barbara, you're talking about how the footings of this market are incredibly solid, that people are not leveraging their purchases. Are you saying that the housing market of 2022 is more immune to the rising interest rates that a lot of people are hoping will dampen some of the price increases that we've seen on homes? Uh, I'm not saying it's totally immune, uh, but it's better equipped to handle it uh, simply because you don't have leverage buying. Uh, in the Sun Belt right now, about one in eight homes are being purchased by investors. That worries me. You didn't see that two years ago. So that makes a, a buyer that I'm not as confident in as a regular buyer who's going to raise their kids in that house. But the people who are buying homes today are not highly leveraged and there are no bank programs that make them or tempt them to be leveraged out. And so that gives me a great Great peace of mind. Of course, interest rates is his partner in the housing market. If those continue to shoot up, the government will put down the housing market and with it, the inflation and all the problems will follow the housing market. It's a leader in the inflation category. So that if that changes, if, if people are irresponsible in the government in that regard, of course, we could demolish this housing market. But nobody's really expecting them to act that way. What would you I be, hope you share my confidence. <laughs> what would yeah. you be investing in right now, Barbara, if you had a million to million dollars. Well, what I'm investing in secondary cities. Uh, it used to be that the primary cities like New York City, Chicago, was the best place for investments in real estate. And of course, I love that because it's a slow way to get very rich. But what I'm doing right now is I'm investing in minor minor cities or secondary cities, I should call them, or they'll be offended, like Baltimore um, and many of the small cities in the yeah. Midwest, because the inflation rates are greatest yeah. there in real estate values. Barbara, like Chicago or Los Angeles or Miami, right? Is a secondary city. Yes, thank you very much for giving me my words. (laughs) Barbara. uh, I was groping there. Yeah, Barbara, a simple question which so many people want to know. If house prices go up 40%, should people's property taxes go up 40%? 
No, I just don't think so. It would break the back of the housing market. You yeah. can't have that. People can't take it on both sides. No. Okay. Barbara Corcoran, thank you so much for joining today. The Corcoran Group and featured in People's Magazine. Okay. Really good to see that as well. And you know her from Shark Tank, I should say. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.